Welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host, and welcome to a new mini-series all about the history of Irish tennis. This is episode one. For this series, I've been speaking to Tom Higgins, author of the book The History of Irish Tennis a number of years ago. If you haven't heard of the book, it is three volumes, uh, covers everything about the history of Irish tennis. It is a, a really amazing book. And I was really excited to talk to Tom for these episodes. He is definitely the official expert on um, all things the history of Irish tennis. This episode, we are discussing the very origins of tennis as a sport and lawn tennis, how the sport came to Ireland, and the opening edition of the Irish Championships, which later became the Irish Open, and why they were such a success when they were first held. Just before we get into this first episode, I will mention that Tom's book is available to buy. You can send Tom an email at higgins.tom at itsligo.ie. I will also leave that email address in the description. So if you'd be interested in buying uh, this three-volume, 1,800-page book, then just send Tom an email. The book costs €50 and can be shipped to anywhere in Ireland. So do get in touch with Tom. And now let's get into our first episode. And we started things off with a question from former Fed Cup player and captain Yvonne Doyle about Tom's inspiration for writing the book. Here we go. Hi, Tom. It's Yvonne Doyle here. I just wanted to ask you what your motivation and your inspiration was to write the book, The History of Irish Tennis. It was such a huge task to take on and um, some achievement. So yeah, I was just wondering what inspired you and what motivated you? I grew up in, in Longford and um, one of eight children and we all played different sports, but tennis was a common one because we lived very near the the tennis club in Longford where they had five grass courts and uh, from about the age of eight or nine we'd all started playing the game there that's that's a long long time ago <laughs> and later on I would have played in, in secondary school and then Galway when I went to college and then in various clubs such as um, Glasnevin for a year and then Ashburn and then eventually we ended up living here in Sligo and 1978 was the year the club started here and okay. then I got really involved in, it in, in, in terms of organization and playing and coaching and so on and after 21 years I was going to put a little book together for Sligo Tennis Club and I heard Jimmy McGee who's a famous he's not with us anymore Jimmy the famous uh, uh, sports brain I don't know if you've ever heard of him but a lot of people would and on a particular I can remember to this day on a particular day on the radio, and it was October, November, he mentioned that Barry McGuigan wasn't the only famous sports person from Clonus and Monaghan. And he mentioned a fellow called Jim Park, or James Cecil Park. And I went and looked him up. And this fellow, James Cecil Park, was a phenomenal tennis player. Now, I'm, I won't go into, into all the details today, but he was phenomenal. But he's in the Guinness Book of Tennis Records has been the best all-round sportsman in the world who was a tennis player. And that was the day I decided I'm going to do more than just uh, slide about tennis. I'm going to do the whole country. Yeah. And eight years later, I got the book finished, all three volumes of it. That's great. And as you say, it's a huge 
volumes, like a, a you know an awful amount, uh, an awfully large amount of, of content in it. Were, were there moments when you were writing it that you know it seems like there was too much and you know, it was almost like a challenge to you? And, and how how did you maybe overcome those if there were those kind of moments that you had? I tell you what, what actually happened was that the thing evolved. Initially, it was going to be a relatively short book of a, maybe three hundred pages or four hundred pages. And then more and more material came to me literally from all over the world, from Australia, from, from Texas, from New York, uh, about Irish tennis people and their connections. And then more and more I found about, about clubs that were around that I hadn't heard about. And there was a gradual network of uh, information coming from all sides. And same with photographs and data. And I said, look, this is a once off. So I'm going to include as much as I can. And we end up with 1,800 pages later. Um, I had to finish it, <laughs> even though it, obviously there would be flaws in it and material not in it that uh, subsequently I found out about. But um, it was an attempt to put everything on Irish tennis into into one into one volume or yeah. one, one three volumes as it turned out. Yes, you know I think it's it's obviously an amazing thing to to have such a such a good resource. But but to jump in now to to some of the, the history of Irish tennis, the content that we're going to be discussing a bit. I guess the first question I have is, when did tennis first arrive in Ireland, if you go all the way back? Now, to answer that one, we could go back and look at how, how all the racket sports evolved, because there is, there, there is a connection. I'm talking about games involving balls and shuttlecocks, and I've identified 40 or 50 different sports that all had their origins in games that were played in streets or in monasteries in France or in, in Italy. And then eventually a game called uh, tennis uh, arrived. And tennis was actually uh, an indoor game. They played across a net uh, with funny shaped rackets, funny shaped walls, and it was all to do with a sport. And one, one side of the court was longer than the other. It was um, called uh, real tennis or royal tennis. And real tennis literally is still around in Australia and America, in England. Real tennis did take, take off in Ireland. And the um, Trinity College in Dublin, one of the earlier sources of our sports, they had a, a real tennis court in 1741. It's, now, okay. the oldest one that I, that's been recorded is back in the year 1298 in Valencia in Spain. The gentlemen of Valencia played it. Never mind the monks in France and in Italy. So that game uh, took off and it became a sort of a big thing among the royal houses, uh, houses of Europe. And all these courts built were built, expensive courts because of the, the nature of them and each one of them had unique features. And in Ireland in particular, there was a famous one built in the 1880s, I think, I think it was the 1880s, by a member of the Guinness family. And this was built off Earthford Terrace in Dublin. And it held the World Professional Championships for real tennis there in 1890, I think, approximately. Now, that was, that was real tennis. Now, in parallel to that, there was a sport called rackets which is nearly the originator of squash. And then there was badminton. And badminton was popular, goes way back as well, but one of the organizing, the original organizers of badminton were the military, British military, when they, when they were operating in India. And then 
Badminton Hall in England is where it took off in terms of organisation. But the gentry, if you like, used to play that as an indoor sport. And um, there was quite a lot of badminton around. But they found when they went to play outdoors, the wind was a big problem. And lo and behold, in 18, the end, December 1873, uh, a Welshman, he was a major, Walter Clopton Wingfield, sat down and he worked out we could have a game that would be outdoors, it would be active, it would be suitable for male and female and be uh, competitive as well. And he produced a patented game in the early part of 1874. Now, that patented game involved a, a box set with nets, mallets, bats, balls, even line markers, I think. And within one year, now this is the, the phenomenal start of lawn tennis, within one year, that particular game uh, took off everywhere. There was a, over a thousand sets of his game sold in England, Ireland, over in America, and a lot of different countries around the world, uh, Australia and so on. He called it Sparastica. And Sparastica uh, is actually a Greek word for ball game. And, and the, on the box, he had the game of Sparastica or lawn tennis. Now, he wasn't the first person to come up with the term lawn, lawn tennis. A couple of years before that, there was an Englishman and a, and a Spaniard, Spaniard tried out the game of lawn tennis on a court up near Birmingham, I think. And once Major Winkfield patented it, the game took off. So it was actually, it happened a couple of years before, um, I think it was 1872, I think. And then lawn tennis took off, literally, like wildfire. At the end of 1874, he came up with this... Um, rules in the initial box sets and then he reproduced it again at the end of the year and at the end of the year he not alone produced the rules but also he produced all the quotes about this new game and literally the, the press all over the place were all fairly excited about this we're talking about the gentry you now don't forget people who had money and um i just i'm going to read very quickly from one of the uh, press items that came up about this new game and it sort of puts it into context. Sparrowstiker, or lawn tennis, the new rival to Crokey, has been favourably reviewed by all the public journals. They declare that it is a clever adaption of tennis, that it will become a national pastime, that no English home, no public grounds, no barrack square should be without it. We certainly wish it well, as it is felt that there's a sad want of a new game Crokey being declared by some too, too scientific, by others to be an insipid game, whilst the other candidate for public favour, badminton, cannot be play, played out of doors except in the stillest uh, weather. And that's, if you like, some summarises why lawn tennis took off. An outdoor active game, uh, and it was a replacement, if you like, for croquet. So you will notice um, when, you, when you look at the names of the lawn tennis clubs around this country, never mind in England, that uh, croquet was a big part of them. Like the, the Wimbledon club in, in, in Wimbledon is called Wimbledon Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club because it was croquet that was played first. And in 1875, a year after this game was founded, they decided to put aside one of the croquet um, pitches 
for lawn tennis and for badminton. And then gradually the game of uh, lawn tennis, the rules and everything were all sanctioned and the game started getting organized, if you like, and grew very, very fast. Now that's um, if you like the origins of it. In Ireland, there was real tennis going way back. Uh, in fact, in 1610, I was just came across it. There was um, across the road, across the, the Liffey from the four courts, there was a Thomas Street. But off, off Thomas Street, there's actually a, a, a street called Tennis Court Lane. This is a 1610 map. So at that time, it was an in, indoor tennis court in Dublin, at, uh, long before lawn tennis turned up. Now, when it comes to lawn tennis, the early clubs in 1877 were Lansdowne, which in fact was a club based on a sports club in Lansdowne. It was an athletic club, but they actually ended up having other sports and they brought in tennis. So Lansdowne was one of the four originators, if you like, Lansdowne, Fitzwilliam, uh, Monkstown, and Monkstown originated from an archery club, Limerick Lawn Tennis Club, and, and Trinity College. There were five, actually. All started in the, the same year, roughly. And um, the thing gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger and more people played it. But that's, the, that's, if you like, the start of lawn tennis in Ireland. Now, don't forget, in 1874, when Major Wingfield, or Walter Wingfield, as his name was, when he sold his box sets, at the back of his little book, at the end of the year, he produced a long list of literally the elite of society who had bought a set. Now, it's a huge list, but he said oh, he sold over a thousand sets. But the Lords, the Prince of Wales, the Crown Prince of Prussia, the Grand Duke, Sarovich, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, Earls, Countesses, Marquises, Viscounts, Lords, and ladies and honourable gentlemen, and so on. And in the area, you can actually see various Irish names of people on this island who had actually bought the sets. So they're on their croaky lawns, anywhere you have a flat open space, this game of lawn tennis was took off. And then people who were reasonably wealthy, uh, who had a lawn anyway, they actually bought the sets, ordinary people, business people possibly, and there was an awful lot of private courts were developed. In the years 1874 to 1877, you would have a scattering of courts around the country, and then the clubs then came into it. Yeah. Yeah. Who um, who were some of those key people in organising tennis in the early days? You mentioned obviously the clubs that started. Who were some of those people that were were key in, in tennis in Ireland in the early days? In terms of organisation, the oldest tournament would have been the Limerick uh, Lawn Tennis Club, which is now the South of Ireland Championships. They actually started literally two weeks after the first Wimbledon in 1877. They actually had a tournament there and they had a ladies' singles as well as a men's singles and men's doubles. And 1879, the Irish Championships were organised in Fitzwilliam Square by Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club. Now, that was one of the big key developments, if you like, of lawn tennis in Ireland because they had a fellow called uh, Veer Gould and another fellow called Ernest Brown. They were two of the organisers. But then in, in comes a man called uh, Colonel Arthur Henry Courtney. This, this Colonel Courtney was a big organiser. And he 
was affectionately known as the master, and he was involved in tennis development uh, long before an Irish association was formed. Apparently, he was a great organiser. He got on very well. And when the visitors started coming across the water from England, they welcomed them. And he was highly thought of. And he ended up becoming, apart from being the club secretary for years, he ended up becoming the first president of the Irish Lawn Tennis Association uh, later on. And in between, he was fighting the Boer War in South Africa. So he, this man was a busy man, but he was a very a great organiser by all, by all accounts. And then there were, in those days, there were a lot of sports writers, because if you look at the old newspapers, you'll find that there were sports writers specialising in, in events like tennis and badminton. And they used to describe, literally, in detail, nearly every stroke that was played in competitions. And not alone that, but also describe the social side of it. As the Irish Championships, any social events in Dublin, it became as big as any of them. And it became an attraction. People came across from England from the second year onwards and they enjoyed themselves because there was dances and all sorts of functions on every night. And the competition was only part of, part of a, a much bigger event. People went to see it uh, for Sweden Square, apart from getting involved in the actual playing of the sports themselves. So tennis in Dublin, among the English writers, not the Irish ones, but among the English writers, they actually said it's, it's probably more enjoyable event than Wimbledon. That's what it came down to. And that lasted for quite a, quite a long time. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of uh, organisers, uh, later on, the, uh, you would have the Irish Lawn Tennis Association and then the various provinces that come into it. But that, that sort of only gradually built, built up. In the, in the early days, it was the organisers at Fitzwilliam that were the key people getting things highlighted and motivated and in the public eye this is really something some new sport that everybody can enjoy to move on a little bit i guess what can you tell us about those first irish championships that were held as you said in 1879 the first irish championships were held in Fitzwilliam square and they held men's singles men's doubles ladies singles came in in 1879 but it was fairly unique to have ladies singles the previous year uh, Limerick Lawn Tennis Club when they started they actually had ladies singles so they actually made them to be the first open championship with ladies involved partly the reason is in those days their ladies didn't play sport they were confined to playing croquet and it was not the lady I think to do and there were all sorts of issues going on for years by doctors said that women couldn't shouldn't be playing sport and running around the court and that, that's a sort of an energy a separate social issue that evolved over the next 20 or 30 years but nevertheless the, the the Irish Ladies Championship was held and a woman called May Langrish from Kilkenny came up and won the championship herself and her sister actually won a big doubles tournament in the north of England so don't forget Wimbledon we see we all focus on Wimbledon but in England there would have been big tournaments in different parts of down the coast or up in, up near Manchester Liverpool uh, there would have been a lot of different runs. So the North of England one was considered to be fairly prestigious. And it was before that any ladies doubles in Wimbledon, they had them in other locations. And the first one was, the first one in the world was supposed to be the one in the Northern Championships, won by the Langrish sisters. And that was 18, uh, 1882. That was May Langrish who won the Irish Championships. And the, the inaugural winner of the men's singles 
was this man called Vera Thomas St. Ledger Gould. Now I'm going to just intercept something at this point. In, in the early days, a lot of people did not want to know that they were playing in these big tournaments. So they put in pseudonyms, uh, all sorts of names. He called himself St. Ledger, this man from originally from Waterford, who ended up getting a job in Dublin and being one of the one of the, the main committee men, if you like, in Fitzwilliam. And he won this championship, uh, Veer Thomas St. Ledger Gould. Now, he that year he was expected to win Wimbledon. And he went over and played in Wimbledon and he played against Reverend Hartley and he lost that match because th this Reverend Hartley was actually too steady, too steady for him. And it was uh, it was a one-sided affair. This Reverend Hartley actually won it two years in a row. He won it in 1879 and 1880. Now, why Gould is significant is now, by the way, before I leave leave Gould's tennis out of it. At the end of 1879, he went over and played in a, an autumn tournament in England and he took the famous Willie Renshaw to five sets. Now, Renshaw may or may not have heard of him. There's two brothers, the Renshaw brothers, and between them, they were mapping up titles year after year after year. They were that good. They were phenomenal players. So Gould wasn't a bad, a bad player at all. However, within a few years, he got married. He lived in England for a while and then he went to Canada and some stage or other, he decided himself and his wife decided we'll go to the south of France because I, he had come up with an idea how to how to make money on the gambling casinos in Monaco, Monte Carlo. And over a period of time, himself and his wife got into financial bother. They got a loan of money from, and jewellery from some, I think it was a Danish woman. They ended up killing her because... They, and then hid her body. So you had a, a man who was beaten by Reverend Hartley in the Wimbledon final, and he ended up in the courts in the south of France for murder, himself and his wife. Now, it's a long story. A fellow called Michael Sheridan actually has written a book called Murder in Monte Carlo. It became world news, this murder by this famous tennis player and his wife. The two of them, the, the two of them were involved in it. He ended up dying. She died in France in prison and he ended up dying in Devil's Island, which became a film called Papillon years, a number of years ago. It's based on the story of how he ended up dying there. And he was sort of, if you like, he went from one court to the other, a tennis court to a real court in France. And that was the end of his career. And that is where we will leave episode one. A big thanks to Tom for talking. Do join us again in episode two, where we will be discussing the success of Irish players at the Grand Slams and the golden era of Irish tennis. I'm really looking forward to this next, this next episode, so do tune in then again. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it around. I think it's really great to, to get to listen to Tom talking about this subject and, and, and getting so much information about the history of Irish tennis. I found this really, really interesting. Big thanks for listening to this episode and we will see you again next time.